It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. As always, the week jam-packed with security news. We'll talk about the breaches at Uber and Grand Theft Auto and whether they're related. We'll also look at uh, Google's very welcome use-after-free vulnerability technology. And as long as we're talking Google, a very important setting you'll want to turn off in Chrome. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 889, recorded Tuesday, September 20th, 2022. Spelljacking. Security Now is brought to you by Barracuda. Barracuda has identified 13 types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them every day. Phishing, conversation hacking, ransomware, plus 10 more tricks cyber criminals use to steal money from your company or personal information from your employees and customers. Get your free ebook at barracuda.com slash security now. And by Bitwarden. Get the password manager that offers a robust, cost-effective solution that can drastically increase your chances of staying safe online. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit. And by Tanium. Tanium unites operations and security teams with a single platform that identifies where all your IT data is, patches every device you own in seconds, and implements critical security controls, all from a single pane of glass. Are you ready to protect your organization from cyber threats? Learn more at tanium.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover the latest security news, the latest breaches, ransomware, and this guy right here is in charge, Mr. Steve Gibson. Hello, Steve. Yo, Leo. Good to Great see to you. With you again. Yeah. We were we were discussing fezzes before we began recording. <laughs> uh, the 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 years. I mean, I have collected them since. I guess you stuck them on my head when I right. my twit in previous right. years. Right, and I, you know, a fez uh, is actually a, a nice hat because, but it, but it is brimless. So, uh, yeah, it, it, I'm not sure exactly its intent. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a uh, Kangol. Uh, yeah, because yeah. you get at least a little brim over your eyes, yeah. cover your eyes. That's so, right. Yeah. So, um, for episode 889, we're going to talk about something which I don't mean to like over alarm anyone. This is not a big problem, but it's an interesting information leakage, which. Uh, which people should be aware of, if nothing else. Uh, and it was named by the people who stumbled upon it, Spelljacking. Um, but we've got a lot to talk about. We've got last peak, last week's Patch Tuesday. Uh, also, the changing landscape of cyber insurance as a consequence of all of the attacks that the world is now uh, being subjected to. And, of course, we've sort of seen the writing on the wall there. Um, we're also going to revisit uh, these uh, sort of a collection of recent major network breaches. Of course, Uber made the headlines everywhere, but also Rockstar Games got hit by the same cretin. Uh, and then we have the final update 
from uh, LastPass about what happened there, which I know that a lot of our listeners have been, you know, cold holding their breath about. Um, we're going to look at a, another significant problem facing 280,000 WordPress sites and at a probably a useful recommendation for future mitigations of similar things. Uh, we're going to examine the cost of processing performance for the most recent RetBleed security mitigations, someone did uh, actually a, an engineer at VMware. They have some. They have a department called Performance Engineering at VMware, and uh, he lived up to his uh, department's title. Then we're going to look at Google's very welcome use after free new vulnerability mitigation technology. We don't, you know. All of these problems that we're finding in browsers virtually are use-after-free problems. Uh, and to their credit, they've tackled this thing, this like this seemingly intractable problem. And then after sharing a few pieces of listener feedback, uh, we're going to take a look at a surprising consequence of enabling Chrome's enhanced spell checking and talk about some mitigations there. So I nice. think another great podcast for our listeners and... A, a sad but sort of like okay, well, of course, uh, picture of the week. Aww. So, yeah, oh, yeah, sad but uh, a sign of the times, shall we say? It is a sign, indeed. <laughs> Some a signage of the times. A signage of the times. <laughs> we will get to that in moments, but first, a word from our sponsor, a name everybody in security knows. Well, I hope, certainly expect. Barracuda. 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 Uh, Barracuda, of course, protects you at the perimeter, protects us. We use Barracuda at the perimeter. But they also can protect you in your inbox, and that's pretty important. These days, email is a huge threat. In a recent email trends survey, 43% of respondents, almost half, said they'd been victims of a spear phishing attack. Unfortunately, only 23% they had said they had dedicated spear phishing protection. That's a big, a big wide hold. That's why it works, right? Spear phishing is targeted phishing emails, emails targeted at your employees using information about your company, like the boss's name, stuff that makes it very, very credible. And it makes me and any business leader terrified. How are you keeping your email secure? Barracuda, this is their bread and butter. They have identified 13 types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them every day. Not just phishing, but conversation hacking, ransomware. There, that's just a few. There are ten more that cyber criminals use to steal money from your company, or personal information from your employees and customers, or both. Are you protected against all thirteen types? Do you even know what all thirteen types are? Attacks are becoming so much more sophisticated than ever before. What the the Uber attack? Perfect example. Social engineering to prey on an Uber employee got him. To give up, you know, the family jewels, uh, urgency and fear sometimes playing into this. I didn't see it. Uh, I don't think they've released the, what the, the fish spear fishing attack was, but I suspect it was something like, uh, yeah, this is Joe downstairs from IT. We're just uh, testing our systems, that kind of thing. Social engineering attacks like spear phishing, business email compromise, cost businesses an average of $130,000 an incident. And imagine the embarrassment, Uber and Rockstar Games, two of the big uh, spear phishing attacks this week, f feel. I mean, that's, you know, reputational damage, too. 
And of course, they're always topical, right? At the start of uh, 2019, actually, it started this year where testing became, uh, you know, a big deal. You'd start, Barracuda researchers started increasing COVID-19 test-related phishing attacks. In fact, they went up 521% between October and January of this year. Cryptocurrency, a lot of interest in that. The opportunity for attacks become ripe. People, bad guys, take advantage of whatever's in the news. Barracuda research that found that impersonation attacks grew with the price of Bitcoin almost identically. <laughs> As Bitcoin goes up, so, so do the Bitcoin impersonation attacks. Probably the same thing when it goes down, though, right? In 2020, the Internet Crime Complaint Center, IC3, received 19,369 business email compromise and email account compromise complaints. Adjusted losses for those over $1.8 billion. It is not enough anymore to secure email at the gateway. You can't just protect at the perimeter. It's important, of course, to leverage gateway security, protect against traditional attacks, viruses, zero-day ransomware, you know, spam. But targeted attacks, spear phishing attacks, your gateway is useless against. They go right through. You have to have protection at the inbox level. That's what Barracuda does, including AI and machine learning. It's necessary to detect and stop the most sophisticated threats. Get a free copy of the Barracuda Report, 13 email threat types to know about right now. You'll see how the cyber criminals are getting more and more sophisticated every day and how you could build the best protection for your business and your data and your people with Barracuda. Find out about the 13 email threat types you need to know about and how Barracuda can provide complete email protection for your teams, your customers, and your reputation. I'm not going to, we won't do a quiz, but you really should know this. The quiz is, are you safe tomorrow? Get your free ebook at barracuda.com slash security now. B-A-R-R-A-C-U-D-A dot com slash security now. Barracuda.com slash security now. I love Barracuda. Barracuda, your journey secured. We thank him so much for supporting Steve's efforts here at Security Now. And the one thing I would add to that, uh, next time you talk about Barracuda, yeah. is the new phishing at a, as a service. Oh, we talked about that last week. Fast. Concern. Yes. Jeez. Uh, everyone expects now to see a dramatic increase in phishing email. And, of course, the, the more lines you toss into the water, yep. <laughs> the more fish you're going to catch. Yeah. So, yeah. So our picture of the week is uh, poignant. Uh, we've often shown pictures of the big automated, you know, electronic signage, w which is showing something, you know, like, de well, basically demonstrating that behind it is a unhappy Windows system. And that turned out to be the case last week. Uh, this was a, a large sign, you know, like a roadway-style sign, just acknowledging Her Majesty the Queen, showing 1996-2022. And unfortunately, the looks like Windows 10 system that was driving the signage was running low on disk space. So... Uh, po popped up on the sign again, mm. sort of apropos of that of 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 what the 
sign was acknowledging. It says, low disk space. You're running out of space on this PC. Manage storage and, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> anyway, I just... <laughs> uh, thought it was an interesting coincidence. Life does that to us sometimes. Um, this is, I decided we have a, a new name, Leo, for the third Tuesday of every month. Oh. And that's Patch News Day. <laughs> Patch Aftermath Day. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So last Tuesday, Microsoft updated their range of software to resolve a total of 63 flaws including, well, either one or two publicly disclosed zero-day vulnerabilities, depending upon whether you use Microsoft's more liberal definition of zero-day, which does not depend upon having a vulnerability in active use. But either way, one of the vulnerabilities was being actively exploited. In fact, it was being so so widely exploited that researchers with DB app security, Mandiant, CrowdStrike and Zscaler all encountered it in the wild and reported their findings of it to Microsoft. So its CVE designation is 2022-37969. And it is a Windows Common Log File System Driver Elevation of Privilege. And given that it's a file system driver which runs in the kernel, any of those many attackers who were apparently using this uh, and having some fun with it were obtaining full system root level privileges on the machines they were attacking. So the good news is that was happening to unwitting Windows users and presumably in targeted attacks. So not widespread, but it did come to the attention of four different security firms. Other than that, there were 30 remote code execution vulnerabilities, 18 elevation or privilege vulnerabilities. So the the two the, 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 the most problems solved were the two worst type the worst classes of problems you can have, which are remote code execution and elevation of privilege. Then there were 16 fixes for uh, the Edge browser, you know, Chromium vulnerabilities, seven information of disclosure vulnerabilities, seven denial of service vulnerabilities, meaning, you know, you could crash something. And then one of these oh-so-generic oh, security feature bypass vulnerabilities. Okay. Uh, and there were, there were some admins reporting problems with group policy management and settings after installing last Tuesday's problems. So Microsoft didn't get away completely unscathed, but there were no reports of anything widespread affecting typical Windows users. So, you know, a quieter Patch Tuesday than we've been seeing recently. Lloyd's of London Limited, you know, of course, the famous insurer, has told its global network of insurer groups that new or renewed cyber insurance coverage policies must exclude nation-state attacks as of March 31st, 2023, so about six months from now. Lloyd cited systemic risk to the insurance market as a whole as a reason for the change, also adding that policies must also exclude losses from war unless there is a separate exclusion for this type of 
I guess an exclusion for the exclusion. Uh, so, you know, and it's not surprising, right? This sort of dialing back on cyber insurance coverage uh, is what we've been expecting. And it's here. Insurance firms are seeking ways to, you know, get control of the spiraling cost that they're seeing driven by recent increases in cybercrime, especially ransomware. Nation state attacks are often most targeted and more about espionage than just casual theft or causing damage. But the consequences do sometimes spill over to do considerable damage to other organizations. And the not Petya incident of 2017 appears to be the the primary factor driving this decision. Um, We talked about this a couple times. Uh, There was a protracted legal battle between Merck and its fleet of insurers over, get this, $1.4 billion that Merck was claiming in damages caused by that attack. Uh, And remember, Leo, we talked about it must be that they were just like trying to replace all the PCs that they had. I mean, $1.4 billion. There's also loss of business revenue, too, though, remember. I mean, if you're down for five weeks... That could be a billion dollars in a company. That that could hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, 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 as we've noted before, cyber insurance coverage uh, had previously been relying on an acts of war exclusion to address incidents such as these. But last year's ruling, oh, I forgot to mention that Merck won their battle they they got their 1.4 billion from their insurers so in in basically in response to this the insurer the insurers are saying okay uh let's rethink contracts moving forward here so there's now an explicit um nation state exclusion uh the invasion of ukraine has stoked fears among like well among insurers that similar cyber exchanges may slip their containment and cause, you know, like ancillary damage. Um, There's also been at least one one smaller incident of this nature, the acid rain malware that was aimed at Ukraine's Viasat service at the start of the war. We talked about this at the time back in February, or I guess it was March, Uh, but that also ended up hitting and affecting basically it sort of you know lost containment it also affected a large wind turbine system in uh germany and it was insured and so that they had to pay up so insurers are looking to pull back on risk as companies are increasing their demand for cyber insurance coverage right i mean like companies are saying oh we never really thought about cyber insurance coverage before but that seems like a good thing um and Lloyd's has been planning a change of, you know, of this sort for some time. And they've been drafting an assortment of contractual clauses uh, throughout last year, working to clarify when cyber attacks can be considered acts of war and catastrophically damaging enough uh, to be expect to be accepted from coverage. So anyway, um, I just wanted to mention that, you know, this is happening, that costs are going up. That It's now estimated, in fact, that the amount of money that insurers are going to be asking for 
for the coverage that companies wish will be expensive enough that half of companies will say, you know, that's just too much for us. We're going to go without. So, uh, you know, insurance is always tough, right? Because you're paying for it whether you need it or not until you do need it. And then you sure wish you had it. So anyway, we are seeing a general tightening in the insurance market, uh, basically a, a raising of operating costs for corporations as a consequence of so many that have you know been insured and forced major payouts. Uh, okay, so then, as you mentioned, Leo, we also had a number of major breaches occurring recently. Uh, Uber got a lot of attention, mostly, I think, because the attacker was so brazen. It, the, the, uh, the attacker was just plastering the, the fact of this attack everywhere. So it wasn't like Uber had any choice, any opportunity to keep it quiet. They suffered, a, as a consequence, a significant, embarrassing network intrusion. Um, last, I got a, ki- a kick out of their first posting. Last Thursday... Let's see, it was in the evening, uh, 6.25 p.m. They just tweeted, uh, this came from Uber underscore comms, saying, we are currently responding to a cybersecurity incident. We are in touch with law enforcement, which they've actually been in they've been uh, like uh, talking that up a lot as if maybe that's going to scare people, I I guess. Uh, And they said and they would be posting additional updates as it become available. So so that was Thursday. The day after that, last Friday, in the interest of keeping the lines of communication open, although they still didn't have lots of information after what is arguably a very short time, they said, while our investigation and response efforts are ongoing, here is a further update on yesterday's incident. They said four things. We have no evidence that the incident involved access to sensitive user data, like, for example, trip history. Second, all of our services, including Uber, Uber Eats, Uber Freight, and the Uber Driver app, are operational. Third, as we shared yesterday, we have notified law enforcement. As I said, they they keep talking about that. It's like, okay. Uh, Fourth, internal software tools that we took down as a precaution yesterday are coming back online this morning. So, good that they're they're, they're keeping lines open. And then finally... Three days after that, which brings us to yesterday, the 19th, we get a significantly more comprehensive update. They said, while our investigation is still ongoing, we're providing an update on our response to last week's security incident. They said an Uber external contractor had their account compromised by an attacker. It's likely that the attacker purchased the contractor's Uber corporate password on the dark web after the contractor's personal device had been infected with malware, exposing those credentials. And then listen, get this. The attacker then repeatedly tried to log in using the contractor's Uber account. Each time the contractor received a two-factor login approval request, which initially blocked access. Eventually, however, the contractor accepted one and the attacker successfully logged in. So as I understand this, and there's some confusion in the wording of this and in the reporting, but 
it sounds like because they also later said that they've in, they've tightened their multi-factor authentication parameters. This appears to have been a brute force multi-factor authentication bypass. And we've seen that happen in the past. Since the typical multi-factor authentication uses six digits, you know, uh, and six digits is a clear compromise between convenience and security. We talked about this years ago when this first surfaced. There is literally, for a single challenge, a one in a million chance of correctly guessing a given multi-factor authentication challenge. But if nothing stops someone from making as many guesses as they wish, as often as they wish, 100,000 guesses would yield a 10% chance of guessing, you know, of getting one correct. Anyway, so that appears to be what happened, is that they uh, they acquired username and password credentials, but they were stopped from an easy authentication by multi-factor authentication. But because the uh, Uber had not configured strong lockout policies, which I'll talk about in a second, bad guy was still able to get in. So they said from there, the attacker accessed several other employee accounts, which ultimately gave the attacker elevated permissions to a number of tools, including G Suite and Slack. The attacker then posted a message on a company-wide Slack channel, which, which they're posting, which many of you saw, and reconfigured Uber's open DNS to display a graphic image to employees on some internal sites. Oh, boy, was, that's mean. <laughs> there was, <laughs> yes. Guess what that image was. Uh, oh, Lord. A graphic, a graphic image. Ugh. So they said our existing security monitoring processes allowed our teams to quickly identify the issue and move to respond. Our top priorities were to make sure the attacker no longer had access to our systems. To ensure user data was secure and that Uber services were not affected, and then to investigate the scope and impact of the incident. Here are some of the key actions we took and continued to take, and they list six. We identified an employee any employee accounts that were compromised or potentially compromised and either blocked their access to Uber systems or required a password reset. Second, we disabled many affected or potentially affected internal tools. Third, we rotated keys, effectively resetting access to many of our internal services, meaning, you know, updated their passwords. Fourth, we locked down our code base, preventing any new code changes. Fifth, when restoring access to internal tools, we, re we required employees to re-authenticate. We are also further strengthening our multi-factor authentication policies. And finally, we added additional monitoring of our internal environment to keep an even closer eye on any further suspicious activity. You know, and this could sound like, you know, a, 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 an ad for um, uh, the, the idea of sticking canaries within a network in order to, to catch somebody doing something as quickly as possible. Anyway, they said, the attacker accessed several internal systems and our investigation has focused on determining whether there was any material impact while the investigation is still ongoing, we do have some details of our current findings that we can share. 
first and foremost, we've not seen that the that the attacker accessed the production, i.e., public-facing systems that power our apps, any user accounts, or the databases we use to store sensitive user information like credit card numbers, user bank account info, or trip history. We also encrypt credit card information and personal health data, offering a further layer of protection. We reviewed our code base and have not found that the attacker made any changes. We also have not found that the attacker accessed any customer or user data stored by our cloud provider, AWS S3. It does appear that the attacker downloaded some internal Slack messages as well as accessed or downloaded information from an internal tool our finance team uses to manage some invoices. We're currently analyzing those downloads. The attacker was able to access our dashboard at HackerOne, where security researchers report bugs and vulnerabilities. Of course, we know HackerOne well. They said, however, any bug reports the attacker was able to access have been remediated. So, no, ac- no access to anything sensitive there. Throughout, they wrote, we were able to keep all our public-facing Uber, Uber Eats, Uber Freight services operational and running smoothly because we, we took down some internal tools, customer support operations were minimally impacted and are now back to normal. And finally, we believe this attacker or attackers are affiliated with a hacking group called Lapsus which has been increasingly active over the last year or so. This group typically uses similar techniques to targeting technology companies, and in 2022 alone, that is this year, has breached Microsoft, Cisco, Samsung, NVIDIA, and Okta, among others. There are also reports over the weekend that this same actor breached video game maker Rockstar Games. We're in close coordination with the FBI and U.S. Department of Justice on this matter and will continue to support their efforts. We're working with several leading digital forensics firms as part of the investigation. We'll also take this opportunity to continue to strengthen our policies, practices, and technology to further protect Uber against future attacks. So, I find nothing to fault Uber here. Well, except... They acknowledge their multi-factor authentication if that was, in fact, basically brute forced in order to allow a bad guy in could have been strengthened. And it now is their response was immediate. Their communication has been swift and balanced. And I would imagine that their forensics team is likely glad to be able to get some sleep after a handful of probably very sleepless nights that they our users of HackerOne speaks well of them, and they appear to have a well-running security component to their IT systems since their continuous auditing of systems were able to provide them with a lot of relevant information when those audits were queried. They also identified a weakness, as I mentioned, in their multi-factor authentication configuration and their tightening up. So um, I guess a takeaway for everyone would be to to think about the fact that just as username and password authentication should lock out for some period of time after a reasonable number of failed attempts, the same remains true even after multi-factor authentication has been added. 
That is, there's really no good reason for some for an authentic user to like fail five times in a short period of time to to properly authenticate themselves. Clearly, they're if they've got multi-factor authentication, they've got something which is generating six digits for them to to enter. And you know, you could understand a typo or a timeout once or twice, but not many times in a short period of time. So uh, the the lesson may be here that just adding multi-factor authentication doesn't mean that you can you can then decide you no longer need other lines of defense like short, you know, like some time-limited uh, auto-resetting lockout of an account. And Rockstar Games, of course, they are famously the publishers of Grand Theft Auto. And what happened to them was a massive leak of, of videos for the not-yet-released Grand Theft Auto 6, which I guess is like a highly anticipated, super hot topic. Um, uh, you know, Uber said there are also reports over the weekend that the same actor breached video game maker Rockstar Games. Um, and it's certainly believable that this is the same guy or gang, although I wasn't able to ascertain why they believe that. Oh, because when he released the videos, he used the handle... Uh, something like Uber Hacker. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hacked Uber or something like that. Ah, which, okay. you know, that's not probative, yeah. probative but, that's you know. It. Well, but, but uh, it, it is, what, what I was going to say was that he does seem to be liking making a splash. As and Lapsus so, is. I mean, that's what Lapsus's mo- motivation yes. mostly seems to be is, you know, getting yes. attention. So, so this guy... Uh, Put out more than ninety nine zero videos showing gameplay from the upcoming GTA Six uh, on Sunday. Uh, reports indicated that he's believed to be a teenager, but I was also unable to learn what backs that up. I just saw that in passing, uh, and, and in this instance, he was using the handle Teapot. Uh, and he said he plans to leak more gameplay and even some of the game's source code. Although, I wonder about that because he doesn't seem like the kind of person who who holds anything back. And so, you know, maybe he doesn't have source code. Maybe he does. We'll see. Anyway, Rockstar Games confirmed that the videos were authentic to Bloomberg's main games reporter, but uh, has not commented on the news of the hack or if the hacker did indeed steal uh, the game's source code. So there's breach number two. Breach number three is coming back to update from uh, our previous coverage, and that is LastPass. Um, Last Thursday, LastPass published their final official uh, post-mortem exactly three weeks following their initial breach disclosure, which of course, left some aspects of the attack unknown because it was unknown at that time. So here's the final word from their CEO. He said, on August 25th, 2022, we notified you about a security incident that was limited to the LastPass development environment in which some of our source code and technical information was taken. He said, I wanted to update you 
on the conclusion of our investigation to provide some transparency and peace of mind to our consumer and business communities. We have completed the investigation and forensics process in partnership with Mandiant. Our investigation revealed that the threat actor's activity was limited to a four-day period in August 2022. During this time frame, the LastPass security team detected the threat actor's activity and then contained the incident. There's no evidence of any threat actor activity beyond the established timeline. We can also confirm that there's no evidence that this incident involved any access to customer data or encrypted password vaults. Our investigation determined that the threat actor gained access to the development environment using a developer's compromised endpoint. While the method used for the initial endpoint compromise is inconclusive, the threat actor utilized their persistent access to impersonate the developer once the developer had successfully authenticated using multi-factor authentication. Okay, now that's interesting. It appears that we have another incidence of multi-factor authentication bypass, essentially. We don't know enough about the way LastPass has set things up, but it must just be that the bad guys obtained an authenticated session token from a successfully logged-in endpoint. At least that's sort of what it feels like. You know, it does remind us, though, that simply adding multi-factor authentication isn't any sort of universal cure. So they said, or he, he, he continues, although the threat actor was able to access the development environment, our system design and controls prevented the threat actor from accessing any customer data or encrypted password vaults. And of course, that's what we were hoping to hear. And it looks like we are. First, he said, the LastPass development environment is physically separated from and has no direct connectivity to our production environment. So that was one big question we had when we talked about this three weeks ago is, you know, was the what was the production environment ever in danger from from the a, a breach of the development environment? And he's saying no. They are deliberately physically separated. So, you know, that's just Great. That's exactly what we want. Great news. He says, secondly, the development environment does not contain any customer data or encrypted vaults. Third, LastPass does not have any access to the master passwords or customer vaults. Without the master password, it's not possible for anyone other than the owner of a vault to decrypt vault data as part of our zero-knowledge security model, he says. So, that's what we would hope, and that's what we were talking about before. You know, he's making the point that I made three weeks ago, which is that mistakes can happen to anyone, but as long as the security architecture of the system is designed for trust-no-one operation, um, all of their users will be completely protected. And providing another example of proper design, the CEO explained, he said, in order to validate code integrity... We conducted an analysis of our source code and production builds and confirmed that we see no evidence of attempts of code poisoning or malicious code injection. And he said developers 
do not have the ability to push source code from the development environment into production. Again, really good isolation there. He said this capability is limited to a separate build release team and can only happen after the completion of rigorous code review, testing, and validation processes. So from what he's saying, it really does sound like they have built this this system properly in, in a significant chain. He said, as part of our risk management program, we've also partnered with a leading cybersecurity firm to further enhance our existing source code safety practices, which includes secure software development lifecycle processes, threat modeling, vulnerability management, and bug bounty programs. Further, we've adopted enhanced security controls, including additional endpoint security controls and monitoring. We've also deployed additional threat intelligence capabilities, as well as enhanced detection and prevention technologies in both our development and production environments. And again, this is what I was saying last last time we talked about it, was, you know, all of that is what we would like to have happen. That is, their, their existing architecture was good, they realized it could be made better, and that's what they've done. So I think that, you know, those who have chosen to remain with LastPass should have every reason to feel that LastPass is a competent caretaker uh, of their users, uh, you know, of their own pre-Internet encrypted data. And I, I was, as I was thinking about that, I re- realized that our long-term listeners will recall that early acronym we developed, <laughs> you know, remember PI. Well, the first one was P. I'm glad you changed it for PI. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. That was pre-encryption environment or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pre- You're right. Yeah. Good memory. Pre-entry you know? encryption yes. or something. And you realized that <laughs> PI might be better. Yeah. PI was better than P, indeed. <laughs> Um, Pre-egress do, encryption, maybe. That's, oh, thank you, whoever was listening. No, that was me. Pre, <laughs> Pre-egress oh, no, no kidding. encryption. You, you remembered. You know, I, I, I know that I don't remember anything that happened recently, but boy, I got a good memory for that old stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the club. I'm going to uh, sip on some water while you'll tell us about our next Be my sponsor. guest. Uh, you might even want to, well, never mind. Our show today... <laughs> Brought to you by... Yes, P. Yes, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Bitwarden! <laughs> You'll have time. I go on and on about Bitwarden because I'm such a fan. As you know, Bitwarden is the open source. In fact, it's the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, can be used at work, can be used on the go, is trusted by millions. It's really the right choice for your password manager, especially in business. With Bitwarden, you can securely store credentials, notes, documents, everything across personal and business worlds. And that's really nice for your business. Uh, Everything, though, with Bitwarden starts with the creation of a personal vault. And one of the things I love about Bitwarden, because it is open source, and I've, I've talked to them uh, th- their business model does, you know, does not require them to convert free users. Everybody gets a free personal vault. Everybody that's, you know, take advantage of that right now. Go to bitwarden.com slash twit. But if you want to go to the enterprise, okay, you set them up with a vault. That's got my passwords in it. Now we're going to integrate you into the corporation, the organization's uh, system, and you get both the best of both worlds. It's a really great solution. The thing I love about Bitwarden is they, they are actively in development. For instance, 
we we mentioned the uh, unique uh, email system. They have a username generator now, which I love. They can integrate with all the f- popular email forwarding services, including my own. They just added Fastmail, so I'm thrilled about that. But Simple Login, Anon, Addy, Firefox Relay. So what you'll do is you can create, instead of using your same old email every single time, you can create a unique email, which gives you another layer of security. And it gives you privacy too, right? With Bitwarden, uh, you generate a new username. You'll have the option to create an email alias with a sub-selection for the service you prefer. I, I use Fastmail. Uh, I've already set it up, but to set it up is very easy. You enter the API key for your account with a chosen service. You select the desired options. Uh, it'll remember all of that, of course. Once generated, you've got a new alias. And just like your password, Bitwarden remembers it. They've got it. It's locked in. And it'll autofill it from now on. So, using unique usernames, email addresses, and passwords for every account. I mean, it's still one factor, something you know. But, boy, it's it's three different things a bad guy would have to brute force or guess or steal from you. It's a great method for increasing Internet security and privacy. It, uh, it adds protection to logins in the face of data breaches and leaks. Uh, you can use it with Bitwarden in the Web Vault, the desktop app, the browser extensions. Mobile is coming. It's not here yet, but that's coming in a future release. Uh, if you use Bitwarden to do your uh, authentication, your TOTP codes, you can access it more easily on a dedicated screen in their mobile app now. They're always improving it. It's always getting better. Bitwarden is a fully customizable password manager that adapts to your business needs. Another feature they added I love, Bitwarden Send, fully encrypted way to send transfer sensitive information text or files you of course use unique and secure passwords for every site with enterprise grade security that's gdpr and ccpa and hipaa and SOC 2 compliant the vault is end-to-end encrypted mitigating phishing attacks and they've added even more enterprise capability by adding skim support scim to make it easier to provision and manage users i mean they just keep getting better and better so use it at home free forever uh, i actually pay Less than a buck a month for a premium account just to support them. You get a few extra features. If you're a business, look at the Teams organization option. That's $3 a month per user, which lets you share private data securely with coworkers across departments of the entire company. Enterprises, you'll look at Bitwarden's enterprise organization plan. That's $5 a month per user. Uh, of course, your basic free account, free forever for an unlimited number of passwords or upgrade to the premium account as I did. Uh, very affordable. I think it's 10 bucks a year. I mean, it's I just do it as a donation, frankly. But you don't ever have to, and that's beautiful. The family organization option is great, too. You'll get premium features for up to six family members, a total of $3.33 a month. So all around, a great deal, great technology. You know that Steve and I are fans of password managers, and I love Bitwarden, the only open-source cross-platform password manager that you can use at home, on the go, at work, trusted by millions of individuals, teams, and organizations worldwide. Get started. You can get a free trial of the Teams or Enterprise plan or, as I said, free forever across all devices as an individual user. Just go to bitwarden.com slash twit. Bitwarden.com slash twit. I don't know if they want me to tell people this or not, but they were just in the uh, news they got a $100 million grant to improve Bitwarden. 
Uh, I'm thrilled about that. That's $100 million in new venture capital. Uh, and I think that, to me, that means Bitwarden has the resources they need to get better and better and better. Wow. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's a chunk of money. From PSG, a Woo-hoo. growth equity firm, Battery Ventures. Uh, yeah, that's a, I don't know what that makes their valuation, but that's that's pretty darn good. And they're still open source, which I love. Yeah. Bitwarden.com slash trip. Please use that address so they know uh, you saw it here. Back to you, Steve. So... Um, we have a CVSS of 9.8 for WordPress. Um, last time we talked about a big vulnerability hitting WordPress. I came away suggesting that anyone who is using WordPress in anything other than its barest out of the box essential configuration, you know, that is anyone who has added any of the gazillion tantalizing WordPress add ons ought to give serious thought to running a third-party application firewall on their site. There are three or four of those, but one stands out, and that's WordFence. Um, it's the one that we keep referring to since they appear to be most on top of this particular chunk of the industry. Um, you know, they're the ones who are discovering problems more than uh, than any of the others. When I, I remember I went, like, looking for other WordPress add-on companies and you know i found that there were others but they weren't nearly as as active as these guys anyway you know as we know wordpress matters right it's just shy of 40 percent of the internet's websites so to that end wordfence last week put out a report which serves as a perfect case in point the report is titled psa as in public service announcement Zero-day vulnerability in WP Gateway actively exploited in the wild. And they said, on September 8th, 2022, the WordFence threat intelligence team became aware of an actively exploited zero-day vulnerability being used to add a malicious administrator user to sites running the WP Gateway plugin. They said, we released a firewall rule to WordFence Premium, WordFence Care, and WordFence Response customers to block the exploit on the same day, September 8th. I don't know what those three things are, but they you know, have some sort of a product lineup. They said, sites still running the free version of WordPress will receive the same protection 30 days later. Well... You might as well you might as well not have it if you, if you don't get it for a month. Anyway, the the the, the word fence firewall they said has successfully blocked over 4.6 million attacks targeting this vulnerability against more than 280,000 sites in the past 30 days. Okay, so this WP Gate plugin is a premium plugin tied to the WP Gateway cloud service, which offers its users a way to set up and manage WordPress sites from a single dashboard. Part of the plugin's functionality exposes a vulnerability that allows unauthenticated attackers to insert a malicious administrator into the site. So they said, we obtained a current copy of the plugin on September 9th and determined that it, it, that it is vulnerable. Okay, so you know their model is They've got these these application firewalls deployed. They see something happening, 
and and in WordPress, since it's all PHP based, they're going to be seeing some odd looking query that's being made. That so that brings it to their attention. They look at what plugin the PHP query is targeting, and in this case, the next day they got a copy of the plugin and analyzed it to see what was going on. So they said, we determined that it is vulnerable, at which time we contacted the plugin vendor with our initial disclosure. They said, we've reserved vulnerability identifier CVE 2022-3180 for this issue. So they said, this is an actively exploited zero-day vulnerability, and attackers are already aware of the mechanism required to exploit it clearly, because that's how it came to their attention. They said, we're releasing this public service announcement to all of our users. We are intentionally withholding certain details to prevent further exploitation. As a reminder, an attacker with administrator privileges has effectively achieved a complete site takeover. They said, if you're working to determine whether a site has been compromised using this vulnerability, the most common indicator of compromise is a malicious administrator with the username of RangeX, R-A-N-G-E-X. They said, if you see this user added to your dashboard, it means your site has been compromised. So they also mentioned that, you know, if, if, uh, if you're unable to get an update to this uh, WP gateway, remove it from your system um, or, uh, 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 you know, take some action to prevent it, uh, it from being accessed because that's the way these bad guys are are compromising so many WordPress sites. So, you know, personally, I'm no longer running any WordPress sites. I was for a while. Uh, to maintain a blog, which I infrequently posted to. Uh, but if I were doing so today, I would, you know, for, first of all, I tend not to be adding lots of bells and whistles to my site. I'm happy with, with more of the bare minimum functionality. But, you know, if you had lots of sites and you were using this cloud-based dashboard in order to manage them, uh, you should know that that's a problem. Uh, I, I take a look at the, these word fence people, they seem to be good folks. Although, again, as I said, there are a bunch of, of similar offerings because this sort of add-on is useful. And in fact, as we'll see, it's exactly a web application firewall which led the people who created it to, uh, to, the, you know, to today's uh, podcast topic. Okay, this I loved. Uh, two months ago, on July 19th, Security Now episode 880 was titled Retbleed. As we discussed at the time, it's another of the ongoing and ever-evolving speculative attacks against the Intel and AMD microarchitectures. Until security researchers began looking closely and developed the Spectre and Meltdown attacks, Intel and AMD were both happily inventing and incorporating all sorts of clever tweaks into the execution path of their processors for the sake of improving their performance. In essence, all of these performance tuning tweaks involve having the processor's microarchitecture learning something about the code it's executing. Unfortunately, um, 
you know, well, the good news is that allows it to correctly anticipate what's likely to happen again. But it allows the microarchitecture um, to be probed by by software that understands that there is basically a, a trail of breadcrumbs uh, following behind the code. When, when, when this all works, it allows the code to execute uh, much more smoothly. But the big question we always ask and ponder, but so far we haven't received much of a clear answer to because Intel doesn't want to tell us, is what the performant, what's the performance impact of turning off these features? What happens if we disable this microarchitectural optimization in the interest of enhanced security? Friday before last, on September 9th, a VMware engineer in, the, in VMware's performance engineering department posted the results of his analysis of exactly this into the Linux kernel archive list under the subject Performance Regression in Linux kernel 5.19, which is the, you know, just recently uh, re- updated and released kernel. And it's the one that incorporates treatment for Retbleed. He wrote, as part of VMware's performance regression testing for Linux kernel upstream releases, we have evaluated the performance of Linux kernel 5.19 against the 5.18 release. And we have noticed performance regressions in Linux VMs on ESXi as shown below. Get this. Computing performance has fallen 70-70%. Network throughput down 30%. Storage uh, bandwidth down 13%. He said, after performing the the bisect between kernel 5.18 and 5.19, we identified the root cause to be the enablement of IBRS mitigation for Spectre V2 vulnerability by commit, and then he's got the hex number of the commit that added that to the kernel, uh, and it's titled x86 slash bugs colon report Intel Retbleed vulnerability, unquote. He said, to confirm this, we have disabled the above security mitigation through kernel boot parameter and it's specter underscore V2 equals off in 5.19 and reran our tests and confirmed that the performance was on par with 5.18 release. Okay, so the IBRS to which the engineer refers stands for Indirect Branch Restricted Speculation, which Indel describes as an indirect branch control mechanism that restricts speculation for indirect branches. Doing that is necessary, as our Retbleed podcast two months ago explained in detail, to prevent a surprising rate of data exfiltration from otherwise completely secure operating systems. Consequently, since that would be bad, 
the Linux kernel, starting with 5.19, does so by default unless it's prevented from doing so with a kernel boot override parameter. Um, and to their dismay, what the VMware performance engineering folks discovered was that compared to the immediate preceding current, uh, Linux kernel 5.18, 5.19, as I said, sees a 70% reduction in the performance of compute-intensive tasks, a 30% reduction in network throughput, and a 13% reduction in mass storage performance. I have a link in the show notes to VMware's Linux kernel archive posting for any uh, Linux aficionados among us who will want all the details on this and on the specific benchmarks which were run and how it was done. Uh, the guy who posted this from VMware uh, provided complete details. My feeling about all of this has not changed from its first appearance. And Leo, it's, what, it's the opinion you and I had from the beginning. End users have never had much, if anything, to worry about from any of these subtle micro-architectural attacks. It's the big data center cloud server guys running many different virtual machines across a heterogeneous client population that does have cause to worry. So if I were a Linux hotshot, I'd be disabling all of these Spectre-ish mitigations and free up my processors to run with as much intuition about the code they are running as possible. The, the only danger you would face would be a cross-process information bleed. And that, autom that you know, in order to have a cross-process information bleed, you've got to have something running in your machine, which is is you know all already running in your machine which is able to perform this sort of operation now having said that i do recall that we talked about ret bleed being operable from code in a browser and of course that sort of blurs this boundary um, but typically it has to run for a long time to get any information and it's got to find out where the information is blah 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 so again my sense is end users really don't have much of a concern. Um, if you've got no problem at all under the uh, under the latest Linux kernel from a performance standpoint, then obviously leave the stuff enabled. But recognize, depending upon which distro you're using and which Linux uh, kernel it's got and what mitigations it has by default, um, there is a huge difference in performance when you turn these specter mitigations on versus off and we finally have some what look like very good numbers to support that so again i, I guess i would say it's an individual preference but you need to understand that there is a there's some serious performance hanging in the balance um and I also wanted to tell everyone about some very encouraging news from Google's Chromium team. Um, okay, so the trouble with my doing that is that 
it really gets down into some technical weeds, and I did not want to devote an entire podcast to talk to, to tackling a single complex topic that most of our listeners won't care that much about. Mostly, you're going to want the headline. Um, so this involves pointer reference counting and what they call poisoning quarantined pointers before the pointers release. It is some seriously cool, but also complex, pure computer science. But again, all we really need to know is that the single most troublesome aspect of the Chromium code base, that is, those ubiquitous use-after-free errors and their exploitation, are finally going to be resolved. So I do want to share some of what Google uh, explained. So here's how they begin their explanation. They said, memory safety bugs are the most numerous category of Chrome security issues, and we're continuing to investigate many solutions, both in C++ and in new programming languages. The most common type of memory safety bug is the use-after-free we recently posted about an exciting series of technologies designed to prevent these. Those technologies, collectively, star scan, as you know, star as in a wildcard scan, are very powerful, but likely require hardware support for sufficient performance. In other words, we can't have that today. They said, today, we're going to talk about a different approach to solving the same type of bugs. It's hard if not impossible, they wrote, to avoid use-after-freeze in a non-trivial code base. It's rarely a mistake by a single programmer. Instead, one programmer makes reasonable assumptions about how a, a piece of code will work. Then a later change invalidates those assumptions. Suddenly, the data isn't valid as long as the original programmer expected and an exploitable bug results. They said these bugs have real consequences. For example, according to Google's threat analysis group, you know, their tag team, a use after free in the Chrome HTML engine was exploited earlier this year by North Korea. And as, a, at, and as shown in the percentage bar chart below, half of all known exploitable bugs in Chrome are use after freeze. And I have a, a chart in the show notes, which I grabbed from their blog posting, where these blue bars in this percentage bar chart are shown uh, pretty much, especially later on. Uh, those are That's every quarter from the second quarter of, tw of 2015 through the first quarter of 2021. And certainly from around 2019 on, those blue bars have represented about half of the of the total bugs that Chrome has seen. And, of course, we're talking about them all the time on the podcast. Okay, so then they introduce the concept of what they call their miracle pointer, you know, PTR. They said miracle pointer is a modestly named a technology to present exploitation of use after free bugs. Unlike aforementioned star scan technologies that offer a non-invasive approach to this problem, but would require hardware that doesn't yet exist, Miracle Pointer relies on rewriting the code base to use a new smart pointer type 
which is raw underscore PTR. There are multiple ways to implement Miracle Pointer. We came up with around 10 algorithms and compared the pros and cons of each. After analyzing their performance overhead, memory overhead, security protection guarantees, developer ergonomics, etc., we concluded that the backup ref pointer was the most promising solution. So that was the, the one from around 10 that they end up choosing as the implementation for their so-called miracle pointer. They said, the backup ref pointer algorithm is based on reference counting. It uses support of Chrome's own heap allocator, known as partition alloc, which carves out a little extra space for a hidden reference count for each allocation. Raw underscore pointer increments or decrements the reference count when it's constructed, destroyed, or modified. When the application calls free or delete and the reference count is greater than zero, partition alloc quarantines that memory region instead of immediately releasing it. The memory region is then only made available for reuse once the reference count reaches zero. Quarantine memory is poisoned to further reduce the likelihood that use after free accesses will result in exploitable conditions. In other words, you know, typically what we've seen is the is the the pointer which has been released is pointing to something useful, like still into the in, in into the operating stack where real damage could be done. So they are deliberately, you know, writing something illegal into that pointer so that it in, if someone had access to it, it wouldn't be pointing to anything useful. And they said, in the hope that future accesses lead to an easy-to-debug crash, turning these security issues into less dangerous ones. And, and they said, we successfully rewrote more than 15,000 raw pointers in the Chrome code base into raw underscore pointer, then enabled backup ref pointer for the browser process on Windows and Android, both 64-bit and 32-bit in Chrome 102 stable. And note that we're all running 105 now. So it's been in there for a while. They said, we anticipate that Miracle Pointer meaningfully reduces the, pro the browser process attack surface of Chrome by protecting around 50% of use-after-free issues against exploitation. We are now working on enabling backup ref pointer in the network, utility, and GPU processes, and for other platforms. In the end state, our goal is to enable backup ref pointer on all platforms because that ensures that a given pointer is protected for all users of Chrome. So after that, they continue. That's about like... That's just the first piece of this blog posting because they get into a deep discussion of implementation overhead, which comes down to the overhead of a four-byte reference count for each pointer. But the bottom line is hats off to the Chromium folks for not simply chasing their tails endlessly under the fantasy and fallacy 
that they're eventually going to find all of the use after free bugs. We all know that as new code is being written and as old code is being modified, as many new bugs are being introduced as old bugs are being found and eliminated. That's, you know, just take a look at that chart. You can see that there's no, there's not actually no progress being made uh, uh, along those lines. It's, you know, if anything, there's more blue today than there was back in 2015 when they began doing this. So, uh, yay to them actually tackling this and developing some new technology. The only people who will be made unhappy by this news are, you know, those who've been making their living off of discovering new ways to break into Chrome. Uh, life promises to be much more difficult for them, which, you know, is wonderful. Um, I have a couple little bits of closing the loop uh, from our listeners. Um, oh, Peter G. Chase and actually a handful of our of our sharp eyed listeners Looked at that picture of the week. Uh, well, I'll say what Peter said first. He said, the picture of the week looks a lot like they're actually bypassing the meter. That looks like a meter box. And that hadn't occurred to me, but it did to a number of our listeners. And, of course, that's even more interesting, right? So the idea would be that one of those big round-faced uh, electric meters has has essentially the same sort of of feet sticking out of it, prongs, that two bar fuses would. And so what's actually happened is that the people who are using that power, thanks for having it on the screen, Leo, right, the people who are using that power have bypassed the meter, which would normally be plugged into the front of that, thus monitoring the amount of electricity being used by those people. So... Uh, if so, it looks like they're getting uh, free electricity. Anyway, thank you, all of our listeners, for, for pointing that out. Dan Taylor said, Hi, Steve. Years ago, you mentioned Pegasus Temp ENC, T-M-P-G-E-N-C. And I recall that. He says, as the video editing software you like and use. It's been at least 10 years since my first purchase. I have three different packages from them. The latest is Video Mastering Works 7, he says, and I love it, exclamation point. I just thought I'd say thanks for steering me in their direction so long ago. And it's funny, Leo, I mean, you and I were messing with media back then. I remember that TMPGENC, for me... I didn't have any video editing software, but that was my go-to MPEG-2 encoder oh. uh, back when you when MPEG-2 encoders had, were like lit, littered with all kinds of bells and whistles in the <laughs> UI that allowed you to like you know tune it in order right. to get the best compression and 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 image appearance. I probably wasn't using Windows at the time, so yeah, I, maybe I not. Although I wouldn't know. And I didn't know, but, you know, uh, they're still there, uh, as nice. Dan says, and they've got a bunch of nice-looking software. So. Nice. Uh, uh, Ed, oh, boy, uh, Grigiole. Grigiole. I, I don't know. Uh, he said, I'm a long-time, he, he says, I'm a long-time Security Now listener, but I do not recall hearing you mention the following benefit in the past, and it may be useful to some of your listeners. I am a CISSP. 
and I must maintain my certification by completing CPE credits. I've been submitting my Security Now attendance as a qualifying webinar, 1.5 CPEs, for several years, and these submissions have always been approved. Best, EDG. So, Ed, thank you for sharing that for uh, any of our listeners for whom that may not have occurred and who may also be needing uh, CPE credits. Cool that the podcast is a source for those. Yeah, that's great. Bob Bob O'Brien, he said, in an alternate universe where everyone used squirrel, would that stop slash thwart phishing attacks because they wouldn't have one's master key or encrypt the login handshake? Uh, it's okay, Bob. So, uh, Squirrel, I, I, I realized that when I talked about this last week, I didn't explain why or how Squirrel solves the problem. It, it solves it in a couple ways. First of all, the key being generated by Squirrel is tied to the domain name. So if you're at a phishing site with a bogus domain name, Squirrel will generate a key, but it won't be the right key. It'll be a key, a squirrel key for the phishing site rather than the squirrel key for the site you think you're logging onto. So you automatically get that protection. But the that, that client provided session, CPS feature that I mentioned, that's actually an additional layer of protection. The reason that all of these technologies are prone to man-in-the-middle attacks is that the the man-in-the-middle is 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 literally monitoring all of the traffic in both directions unencrypting it seeing you know sniffing it and then re-encrypting it the way squirrels client provided session system works is that the squirrel client itself which is separate from the browser initiates a connection to the server in order to negotiate credentials. So it automatically bypasses a man in the middle going around it, talking to the proper server, even if it had the proper domain, which in a phishing scenario, it would not. So you sort of get multiple layers of protection from that. Anyway, thanks for the question and and for pointing out that I hadn't really explained it. And Leo, you're going to love this one. Get a kick of this out of this. A tweet from our favorite Dutch ex-regulator, Bert Hubert. Oh, he tweeted. He heard us? Yep. Oh, he said, I'm sorry, Bert. <laughs> Bert. Bert said, international attention for my resignation as regulator of the Dutch intelligence and security services in the Security Now podcast at minute 58 <laughs> Colon wow. 40. Thank you, Steve Gibson wow. at SGGRC and Leo Laporte. I didn't mean to make fun of your name. I'm sorry. No, I, I think he really appreciated. He needed that, the attention. I mean, That's the whole point of yes, resigning, right? Exactly. And the reason he blogged about it was Good. to say, this is my beef about yeah. this legislation and the problem it has. Good. And so we helped him shine a big spotlight on it. Oh, wow. So. Bert, you're welcome. <laughs> okay. And one last bit. Yes. Uh, B- Bill Semph, he, he said, he tweeted, another winner, Steve, second time now that you have recommended a book series 
that my wife loves. So he's is clearly silver talking ships? about yeah. He's clearly talking about the silver ships, okay. and there is in the third book. There's something I need Lori to read, my wife, and uh, uh, she needs, and, and I think she'll enjoy getting to that point. But there's an alien which this author creates. Oh, they are so wonderful, these aliens. So enough. Can't wait. I'm reading uh, William Gibson's uh, The Peripheral because they're making a TV show out of it, which is coming next month. And I thought, oh, I've had this book for ages. I should read it because I love William Gibson. It's not a good audio book. I can't follow it at all. I guess his stuff is so visual that you kind of have to uh, see it in your head. And uh, it's just not working for me. So two days from now, Silver Ships. Good, 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 good. You won't regret it. Uh, Is The Peripheral going to be a movie or a a cable? A series on, uh, I want to say HBO or Apple TV. I can't remember which. Oh, good, good, good. So so we don't have to have commercials. Yeah. Did you you read that? I know you're a William Gibson fan. He wrote Neuromancer, which is the cyberpunk novel. And that one I I really loved. But I I think it might be better for me to watch, watch the show. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. I'll do that too because my reading has been hijacked. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, you're going to be on silver ships for the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, the peripheral is Amazon Prime Video, and uh, I'm just looking at it right now. It looks pretty good. Cool. Looks like it'll be a good cool, show cool. anyway. You know, cool. great high high sci-fi, a lot of VR. We need some. Yeah, we need some. Yeah, very futuristic. So it should be interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, I think I should take a little tiny teeny weeny break here and talk about Tanium before we get back to the meat of the matter, the the reason we've all gathered together. Tanium, they'd like to say something. The industry's approach to cybersecurity is fundamentally flawed. That's a That's a big statement. IT management... Security point tools only offer a small piece of the solution needed to protect your environment. I think we, we, you know, I guess we know that. It's not stopping the Uber hackers. And many of them promise they can stop all breaches when obviously they can't. Part of the problem here is you just don't have the information you need. Making decisions based on stale data, trying to defend your critical assets from cyber attacks with tools that don't talk to one another is just no way for IT teams to navigate today's attack surface. It's time for a different approach. And Tanium has really emerged as the company to do this. They say it's time for a convergence of tools, endpoints, and IT operations and security. No more data silos. They have solutions for government entities, for education, Financial services, retail, healthcare. You can trust their solutions for every workflow that relies on endpoint data. They've got asset discovery and inventory, which lets you track down every asset you own instantaneously. They can help with risk and compliance management, which helps you fix and find vulnerabilities at scale in seconds everywhere. They've got great threat hunting capabilities, which lets you hunt for sophisticated adversaries in real time. You've got client management, which can automate operations from discovery to management. And if you have sensitive data, and probably you do, the sensitive data monitoring will help you index and monitor sensitive data everywhere globally in seconds. You might have noticed speed is a big part of this. Tanium protects organizations where other endpoint management and security providers just can't. With a single platform, 
Tanium identifies where all your data is across your entire IT estate, patches every device you own in seconds, and implements critical security controls all from a single pane of glass. Kevin Bush, the vice president of IT at Ring Power Corporation, says Tanium brings visibility to one screen for a whole team. And if you don't have that kind of visibility, you're not going to be able to sleep at night. With real-time data comes real-time impact if you're ready to unite operations and security teams with a single source of truth and confidently protect your organization from cyber threats. It's time you met Tanium. To learn more, visit Tanium.com slash Twit, T-A-N-I-U-M, Tanium.com slash Twit. They're talking about uh, sci-fi novels in our Discord. That Discord, by the way, uh, is a great place to go if you are, uh, you know, you want a community of people who listen to shows like Security Now. You like to hang with them. Uh, it's all part of Club Twit, which has become more and more the country club for geeks. <laughs> no golf courses. <laughs> But we do have our own Minecraft server, <laughs> several of them. Uh, we do have some really fun Let's Play stuff. I was doing a Satisfactory on Saturday uh, at the same time as we were doing our Untitled Linux show with Jonathan Bennett. We have lots of shows in the club that are club only, like Hands on Mac with Micah Sargent and Paul Therott's Windows Weekly. Plus, that's just the Discord. You also get ad-free versions of all of our shows, including Security Now!, and you get the Twit Plus feed, which includes conversations Steve and I have and all the other show hosts uh, before and after the shows that don't make it in the podcast. There's lots of good stuff in there. How much would you pay for that? How about seven bucks a month? That's nothing. A couple of lattes a month and you're in. It really helps us. It is becoming more and more important to our bottom line. It's almost 25% of our revenue now, and, and, it, and we need it uh, as the recession hits hard uh, with podcast advertising. So you're really helping us out. Seven bucks a month. That's all I ask. And ad-free versions. You wouldn't even hear this. Go to twit.tv slash club twit. RTFM saying, do we get a Fez? Well, I'm working on it. I don't know if you get a free Fez, but we're going to see if we can get you a Fez deal. <laughs> so you can join Steve and me in the Fez club. Uh, it, it really does help. Uh, thank you for joining uh, to all of our club members. There is his Fez. <laughs> you look a little goofy with the tassel hanging in front of you. <laughs> Twit.tv slash club twit. <laughs> okay, Steve, I am ready to talk about spelljacking. Okay. So again, I don't I don't want to overstate this, but this is something I know a percentage of our listeners will really care about. So it comes from a company named Otto. O-T-T-O. Actually, it's O-T-T-O hyphen J-S dot com, as in auto JavaScript. Uh, it's not a company we've talked about before, and they look like an interesting group. They describe themselves with the tagline, which is kind of interesting, built on innovating cybersecurity and protecting modern freedom. Okay, that's what? an interesting mix. I know. And they explained, they said, Auto was created by a team of innovators with 30 years of combined exper expertise in cybersecurity, third-party JavaScript, and MarTech ad tech. Before launching Auto, we worked on and created solutions for some of the world's largest banks, media companies, and even the U.S. government. Okay, so what they appear to have is some powerful add-on technology for helping to manage what exactly 
a sophisticated modern website is doing, which, when you think about it, may not always be obvious or necessarily under control of a site's designers. Consider the challenges when all sorts of third-party libraries with their own complex dependency chains are being pulled into a website visitor's browser on the fly. And then, you know, to that mess, add advertising, which may also be bringing along its own scripting. Anyway, the, 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 bullet, part, the bullet points for them says, stop client-side attacks, plug auto into your application security suite and protect your supply chain. Traditional WAFs, web application firewalls, API security, DDoS, and bot protections are all essential components of your AppSec suite, but they don't protect the client-side gap in your third-party supply chain. And so they said, visibility. Auto provides continuous monitoring and, and analysis of thir- first, third, and nth party script behavior and vulnerabilities, which is like is what I was talking about before, where who knows what scripts the scripts are loading the scripts for. Uh, also, protection. Advanced malware guard and script shield defend your website from Trojans, phishing, malicious code injections, mage cart, and client-side attacks with real-time integration. And control. Take control over client-side application security with precision script and policy dynamic CSP automation. Anyway, so given that these guys are deep into watching and analyzing exactly what a user's browser is doing, it's not surprising that they found, uh, well, that they would have been the ones to to catch some unexpected and unwanted behavior from Chrome and Chromium-based browsers, specifically Chrome and Microsoft's Edge. So what they found, Google's Chrome and Microsoft's Edge editor, which is, of course, Chromium-based, the enhanced spell check features are phoning home to expose their users in the clear passwords usernames, email addresses, dates of birth, social security numbers, and so forth. Basically, anything entered into form fields that is not recognized locally by their spell checkers is sent back as entered in the clear to Google or Microsoft to request spelling suggestions from their remote recommendation engines. Now, that's obvious, right? I mean, that's what enhanced spell check is, except that there, by default, are no limits on what is being sent back. And so it includes, you know, anything not in the local dictionary, which, you know, certainly better be your passwords. So, again, it's not the end of the world, but in an environment where we want and expect our browsers to locally hash our passwords so that they are that they never leave our browsers in the clear sending every one of our pre-hashed passwords to Google or Microsoft without our knowledge or permission seems like something that someone should have thought about and should be preventing and if the passwords as i said are that we're using are present in our spell checkers local dictionary so that they're not being sent to Google or Microsoft, well, then we have bigger problems because you don't want to be using passwords that, that are, you know, 
in your own local language. So I have a screenshot in the show notes of the of Chrome, the Chrome browser's posted query and Google's reply when a user was logging into Alibaba with the test password share password asterisk one two three. And you can see that being sent in a little uh, little uh, JSON blob on the left. And Google replied with the pass with the with the spell check suggestion share space password, which is what you would expect it would recommend. But in the process, the user's password with no encryption of any sort went to Google and they got it. And the same things happens if you're using Microsoft Edge. So again, not the end of the world but not a good look. Also, um, um, uh, you could argue that it's never useful to run someone's password or email or social security number through spell check. You know, all it's going to do is it's going to, if, if like, if it did correct your password, it would mess it, it would up. be wrong. So, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. terrible. So, AutoJS's co-founder and CTO, Joss Summit, he, he discovered the spell check leak while he was testing the company's scripts behavior, and he explained, he said, if show password is enabled, the feature sends your password to their third-party servers. While researching for data leaks in different browsers, we found a combination of features that, once enabled will unnecessarily expose sensitive data to third parties like Google and Microsoft. What's concerning is how easy these features are to enable and that most users will enable these features without realizing what's happening in the background. And as we'll see in a minute, uh, I was guilty of having done so at some point in the past. I checked. It's like, oops. (laughs) Uh, Ouch. So... This unsuspected and inadvertent leakage could obviously lead to serious trouble for consumers and major industries when it comes to privacy, data protection, and client-side security. Not to mention that it's a clear violation of HIPAA and similar privacy regulations which rigorously restrict third-party access to sensitive private information. In principle... um, When these features are active, any terminology, such as medical conditions, which are not known to the local spell checker, will be shared with Google or Microsoft. And if your browser is also logged into either company's websites, since the post query is being made to their servers, your logged-in session ID cookie will accompany the aberrant spell check query. So they also know who you are. Not that there's anything wrong with Google or Microsoft receiving this. Not that there's anything, you know, any reason to believe they're logging it or collecting it or doing anything. But they're receiving it from you. So AutoJS noted that f- that um, five websites and services of concern were, and, I, and I, you know, they didn't do an extensive test, but they found out that they noticed that Office 365 does this. Alibaba's cloud service does this. 
Google Cloud Secret Manager site does this. AWS Secrets Manager did this. They added an update that, it had, that AWS had already mitigated the issue, and LastPass site was doing this when they were notified. They noted that both AWS and LastPass had immediately and already fully mitigated the issue. The auto guy said that LastPass was the first to respond to outreach and first to fully mitigate the risk. They quoted LastPass's Christopher Hoff, who's their chief secure technology officer, saying, quote, It is disconcerting that customers can inadvertently expose confidential data by enabling innocuous browser features and not understand that anything they type, including passwords, could result in that data being sent to third parties. And in, in the show notes, I grabbed a snippet of the last pass login page now after they made the fix. And you can see highlighted there uh, in the body tag, it, it opens the body tag. It says spell check equals and then false in double quotes. Yay. That's all that's necessary to shut this behavior down on that page. But nobody is doing it. Um, in the uh, the AutoJS researchers created a demonstration video to illustrate how spell jacking could easily expose a company's cloud infrastructure, servers, databases, corporate email accounts, and password managers. In the video, an employee had enabled enhanced spell check features when he was using that to create a document. But that feature remains enabled for all sites, and the user then visits uh, uh, after that goes to his enterprise database credentials and shows them being spelljacked and being sent uh, to, to Google when he clicks on the show password button in order to verify that he entered his password correctly. Um, so the video uses a common scenario in the workplace to illustrate how easy it is to enable the browser-enhanced spell check features and how an employee could inadvertently expose their company without ever realizing it. Most CISOs would be extremely alarmed to learn that their company's administrative credentials were unwittingly shared in clear text with a third party, even one they generally trust, such as Google or Microsoft. AutoJS tested more than 50 websites and sorted 30 of those into a control group spanning six different categories of websites which people use frequently and which have access to highly sensitive, personally identifiable information, you know, PII data. Okay, so remember that by default, all data entered into forms that's not recognized by the browser's local spell check dictionary will be sent to retrieve remote suggestions. But passwords will not be sent until and unless the user clicks the show password button. So that's that's some relief there. In Auto's testing, five websites per category were selected based on top ranking in each industry. They said that they tested uh uh, to, well, they, they were they were they were testing to create some benchmark for how much exposure might be occurring. So the six categories they selected were online banking, cloud office tools, healthcare, 
government, social media, and e-commerce. Of the reference group of 30 websites tested, 96.7% did send personally identifiable information back to Google and Microsoft. Only one did not. 73% sent passwords when show password was clicked. But but those not sending passwords only didn't because they lacked the show password feature on their site. So otherwise they would have. And interestingly, the only... uh, the only control group website that had mitigated the issue. There was one out of those uh, total of, what was it, 30 sites. Yeah, one out of 30, thus 96.7. The one that had was Google. So Google was aware of this and didn't want that personally identifiable information and possibly passwords even being sent back to them. Though Google did mitigate the issue for email and some services, they have not mitigated it for some of their other services like Google's Cloud Secret Manager. Also, Auth0, a popular single sign-on service, was not in the control group, but was the only website other than Google which they found that had correctly mitigated the issue. So props to Auth0. Anyway, so the point is the knowledge of this is out there but it has not yet been receiving wide attention, which is one of the reasons I wanted to put it on everyone's radar today. As I noted in the example of LastPass's mitigation, companies can mitigate the risk of sharing their customers' personally identifiable information by adding spell check equals false to the containing page or to all input fields, um, although this might create problems for users you know, who want spell check, I suppose, um, Alternately, that override could just be added to the form fields that might contain sensitive data like username, password, and so forth. Or, you know, please describe your medical condition. Um, Fortunately, the enhanced spell check feature is not enabled by default. But once it's been enabled, it remains so. I was curious about my own settings. So I went to settings in Chrome and entered enhanced spell that's as much as i needed to put into the search bar and what do you know uh, it turns out i have enhanced spell check on of course you I'm do sure i turned it you on just if you yeah. added all your passwords to the dictionary <laughs> then it would always that's be right. okay right then it will never yes <laughs> it will never need to go ask google that's or microsoft another solution. if they have a, if they have a suggestion for a, an improvement because it's always spelled I, right you mistyped your password. <laughs> it looks like gibberish. So it was enabled in my instance of Chrome. I have no idea when I may have turned it on, but it's been on ever since. Google makes it clear what's going on. They say right there under the option, text you type in the browser is sent to Google. But you'd sort of think they wouldn't send your password field data, uh, but they do. Anyway, well, that's so, up to the people, as you showed, who have password fields to make sure spell check yes. equals false. Yes, I think I hope I would hope everybody would now go. Oh, yeah, I guess we need to do that, right? Let's hope that happens. I'm yes. looking at Firefox, and it I uh, it says check your spelling as you type, and I have it checked. So yeah. it probably is default. Yeah, 
In all likelihood. So, while simply turning off enhanced spell check will resolve all concerns, AutoJS does offer a free Chrome extension that will alert users when they're visiting a uh, website nice. that, that it has the risk of data leaks caused by enhanced spell check. Now, the problem is all websites do, like virtually. So you, it may be a little annoying. Uh, maybe it only pops up when you're on a password page, and so it's just going to remind you of that. I wonder where um, Firefox uh, sell, sends my uh, password. Yeah, and that's a good question. It, right? I mean, yeah, this might be something you want to turn off there as well. The operating system does spell checking in th- most operating systems, right? So you probably don't need the browser to do it. True, although it makes sense that Chrome would be bringing along their own just because yeah, yeah, they're Chrome, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and, and they want it cross-platform and the same for everything and so forth. Right. So, uh, so anyway, for what it's worth, I've got the links at the very end of the show notes for today. There's something called Auto JS Shop Secure, which they say they call free browser protection for shoppers. Uh, I don't know why it's not for everybody. Uh, and then also AutoJS developer tools, which they said is free runtime script testing tools, which might be of use or interest to our more techie users. So I've not looked at either of those, but this just popped up on my radar that, you know, that personally identifiable information was by default going to Google and Microsoft may not be something you care about, may not be something you're exposed to if you never turned on enhanced uh uh, enhanced spell check, but I'm sure there's a bunch of listeners who are saying, "Ooh, crap! I didn't know." My, that. I'm, as far as I can tell, Firefox brings a dictionary with it, so this is this is a very googly thing to do. Oh no, no, no! We're not going to have an on disk dictionary to do spell check. We're going to send it back to the server and let them do it. I think Firefox just use is not a problem because they use their on disk dictionary, so they wouldn't be uh, sending it back to the home office. So long as they so long as they don't reach out and, right. and check if if something's not in the dictionary, make a that query w- to see. I think Google sees that as a feature. That's like, you know, when you do a Google search and you mistype it, this is actually a way I know some people check their spelling. They type yep. it in the Google search field to get the right I, spelling. I do it all the time, as yeah. a matter of fact. Yeah. So that's kind of a feature of Google's. Turns out not to be such a good one. At least not when it's cases. in your browser and not <laughs> yes. when you don't know it's yeah. there. Yeah. Now all of our listeners know. Good job, Steve. Once again, he, uh, this is why you listen to this show, right? Valuable, valuable stuff. You can get uh, this show in a couple of ways. You can always watch us do it live if you're in a hurry. <laughs> I got to know what happened today. Just uh, we do the show every Tuesday about right after Mac Break Weekly, one thirty to two p.m. Pacific. That's four thirty uh, Eastern Time. It's twenty thirty UTC. The live stream is at live.twit.tv, so you can just go there. There's live audio or video, and listen along. And if you're doing that, chat with us, irc.twit.tv. Um, actually, I'd appreciate it if you did, because the people in there, they're not talking about security now. I think we have a lot of people who aren't, you're sometimes a little over their head. So <laughs> go on in there and raise the IQ a little bit. We'd appreciate it. Sometimes uh, my, my, uh, when, when my wife and I are out walking, 
some neighbors will say, so you do a podcast? Uh, sh- should, I, should I listen to that? No. 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 It's for a very special person. You. It's for you. Uh, <laughs> the Discord, also a very good place to chat if you're already a Club Twit member. After the fact, on-demand versions of the show are always available. Uh, merely go to uh, the uh, website grc.com. That's Steve's site. You can pick up a copy there. He has some unique formats. He has the 64 kilobit audio, same as we do at twit.tv. But he also has 16 kilobit audio for the bandwidth impaired. He also has transcripts written by Elaine Ferris. So that's that's really nice if you like to read along while you listen or you want to search. And every show has a transcript. So you can search those transcripts and find whatever you're looking for. That's a very nice feature at grc.com. While you're there, support Steve. Pick up a copy of his bread and butter, Spin Right, the world's best mass storage maintenance and recovery utility. Currently 6061's coming. And you'll be getting it for free if you buy it today. You can also leave feedback there at grc.com slash feedback. And there's lots of other free stuff. It's well worth checking out, including uh, Shields Up, which, of course, is the first thing everybody should do when they get a new router is test it on Shields Up. Uh, we have copies of the video as well as the audio at our website, twit.tv slash sn. There's a dedicated YouTube channel to security now. That's a good way to share clips from people. Just go to uh, twit. I'm sorry, youtube.com slash security now, and uh, you can just make a little clip and share it that way. That's a great way to do that. Of course, if you have a podcast player, uh, you can subscribe. We've been around for 18 years. If it doesn't have security now in its directory, I don't know what they're doing, what they're playing at. Uh, just subscribe. That way you'll get it the minute it's available uh, of a Tuesday evening. If you are watching or listening uh, after the fact and you still want to interact, we also have Twit Forums at twit.community. Those are open to all. And a, a Mastodon instance, which is like Twitter, only better. It's federated. And that those that's at uh, twit.social again, open to all. So please uh, join both of them. Love to have you in both places. Steve, I think we've done everything we possibly can do to save the world. For this week, we'll be back next week with some more. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Bye-bye. Bye. If you are looking for a midweek update on the week's tech news, I got to tell you, you got to check out Tech News Weekly. See, it's all kind of built in there with the title. You get to learn about the news in tech that matters. Every Thursday, Jason Howell and I talk to the people making and breaking the tech news, get their insights and their interesting stories. It's a great show to check out. Twit.tv slash TNW. Security now.